Hey gang, welcome to episode 165 of the No Persinium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from No Pro headquarters in Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you in part by Meow Wolf, our friends in Santa Fe, New Mexico. A um, little bit of news about Meow Wolf this week. Uh, you can now find them on your phone, uh, at least if you've got an iPhone. Uh, they hit the app store yesterday with a new uh, augmented reality enabled app. Uh, that is based on the House of Eternal Return, which is their installation in Santa Fe. Um, it was it was a surprise to me. Uh, they didn't actually say, like, talk about the app this week. It just popped up on their Twitter feed. And I was like, neat. And Catherine's been playing with the uh, AR apps. Uh, she's put some stuff on her dog in augmented reality. Uh, if, I've, if I'm reading the Internet correctly, I don't always read the Internet correctly. So maybe I got that wrong. But I'm pretty sure I got that right. Um, oh, what a strange world we live in. Uh, augmented reality for dogs. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, again, thank you to our friends at Mailwolf, uh, and congratulations on having an app in the App Store. That's always neat. This week on the show, David Wally, the Chief Creative Officer at MyCo2. Uh, you may have heard of MyCo2. Uh, if you follow the industry as closely as I do, you definitely have heard of MyCo2. Uh, they are the uh, design firm that has uh been sort of the the design powerhouse working with uh, ad agency Giant Spoon on some of the biggest activations of the this past year. Um, South by South Westworld uh, is one of theirs. Uh, so is the Ink Hole. Uh, we, I seriously love the Ink Hole. We at No Persinium loved uh, the Westworld. I didn't get to see, go see the Westworld. We, this episode, we're going to get basically the origin story of South by South Westworld. Uh, and the origin story of David Wally and the origin story of Myco too. So get ready for some lore. Get your lore hats on because we are going there. Um, this for for design nerds. This is this is the one for you. This is a really good one. Okay. Uh, before we get into the interview, a few things, a bit bits of housekeeping here and there. Um, people are like, oh, he's gonna go straight to the Patreon. Nope, 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 nope. Hold on. First, some upcoming events. So check this one out. Uh, check these out. Actually, these these are these are big. Uh, number one, uh, we're hosting a talkback at Cafe Play on September thirtieth in New York City. Uh, that event is now sold out. Just so you know, uh, you never mentioned it before. How did it sell out? Hey, we're good at what we do. Um, so this is uh, for those who don't know. Yeah, uh, if you're interested in No Pro uh, doing doing a talkback on your show uh, at one, you know, uh, we're open to it. Uh, we don't run around soliciting it. We don't run around going like, oh, hey, can we do it? But, you know, if that's something you want, it's something we'll do. So holler at us. Uh, and uh, uh, congratulations to Catherine and the team uh, in New York for uh, the sold out show that's coming up. Um, next week, we'll have an announcement related to the Downtown L.A. Film Fest, which has their Immerse section uh, in uh, October. 
So just keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, there's some f- dates are being hammered out right now. We should have an announcement about something related with them soon. Uh, and even more, there's there's a couple other things brewing for after spooky season. And I got a feeling we're we're gonna do a little meetup during October. Um, the uh, the schedules is a minefield, so <laughs> uh, don't be too surprised. Um, Want to do. Um, yeah, so there's, there's another big announcement, but I want to take this moment to put a different hat on real quick and let you know that if you're in LA, um, and Leia has a new organizing initiative that we're up to, uh, we're gathering a database of where everyone is based on city council district in Los Angeles, uh, because, Knowing where people are and who's willing to go talk or write or call, ah, hit the microphone, sorry, uh, talk or write or call their city council members is incredibly important. Um, a little effort goes a long way. So if you're an Angelino, if you whether you live or work in LA, either one, uh, we have a tool that lets you, helps you look up your uh, council district. And then all we need is the your email and to know which council districts you're in and and how you're willing to contact. Um, that's it. Uh, you can find that on uh, Leia.design on the blog. Uh, you can also find it on Leia's uh, uh, Facebook page, uh, a link to the blog post about it. And in, um, indeed, it's on Everything Immersive as well. So please look for that. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, this this is a big boon. Okay, now final last big announcement, and this is the big one. Um, we at the Immersive Design Summit yet another hat. I should literally put hats on when I do this. Uh, take the one half off, put put another hat on. Immersive Design Summit this week we announced our venue, and I couldn't be more excited. Uh, this year we're going to be in 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 February, specifically February twenty second and twenty third. Two days this year. Right. Last year it was oh, this year. I get confused. In 2018 it was one day. In 2019 it was two days. Uh, just let me say this year because <laughs> it's I get confused. Um, we're going to be at the Swedish American Music Hall and Cafe du Nord in San Francisco. If you know San Francisco, you know these are fantastic venues. Uh, this also means we get to increase the capacity. Uh, we're basically doubling capacity. So last year we were only able to take like 100 applicants. This year we're going to be able to take 200 applicants. We're very excited about that. Uh, it is longer. Uh, uh, we we are, um, you know, last year we were very lucky in that we got a, a great deal on our lo- lo- location, uh, i.e. we we're given our location. Um, this year we are, you know, renting the location and it is over two days. So don't be surprised if the tickets are cost more, uh, because last year they, they cost, I think they, they didn't cost all that much relative to what was going on. Um, yeah. So there you go. Uh, applications are going to go live on October 18th and they're going to be open through November 15th. So you got about a month to get the application in and then we're going to go through our approval process and just run through that as soon as possible and get the news to people as fast as we can. And pricing is going to be announced October 18th. Um, I know that wouldn't say make everybody happy. It's like, why so long? Why this? It's like, um, you want us 
to wait because there's you know some things in motion we're doing everything we can to make sure that we get support in order to keep the ticket price within reason because hey guess what it costs a lot of money to put on events we'll talk more about that on the back end of the show um we'll the other good thing about IDS going live uh, with this information is we've also started dropping the videos from uh, this year's event. See, I keep switching back and forth. Last year, this year, this year, last year, 2018. The videos from 2018 are now getting dropped, uh, starting with Lauren Ludwig of Capital W, who gave a great talk about uh, about structure. And I encourage you to go check that out. Again, you can find it just about everywhere, and we'll put a link in the show notes. On the site this week, we've got reviews from London, New York, Paris, and Los Angeles. We're all over the place. And there's even more coming next week. I just have to find the time to edit things. Catherine and I are running around editing as fast as we can, along with doing that pesky thing called a day job. Speaking of which... Patreon.com slash no proscenium is where you help free us from <laughs> from the from the from uh, selling our labor to anyone but you. Um, that's that's the deal, folks. Uh, that's what the Patreon's all about. Uh, Meow Wolf comes in and helps out, but uh, without the Patreon, none of this would exist. Our latest backers are Ryan Fisher, Ivan Asquith, and Austin Alclair. Thank all of you. Uh, we are at 180 backers right now, and we're just $57 away from the next goal. Um, hey, you know, uh, sometimes this is like pulling teeth, and uh, this is my least favorite part of every show where I say, come on, come on, come on, come on, come uh, on. But seriously, a dollar a month makes all the difference. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, and if you have friends who use uh, everything immersive all the time uh, and don't listen to the show, and and you give to the show, bug them, bug them, get them to drop a dollar a month. All right. This is standing backers for no proceeding. Our Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurston, Mark Baltazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Thank you all. And of course, again, thanks our friends at Meow Wolf. All right. Let's jump into it. David Wally is the chief creative officer at MyCo2. This is a great interview. Uh, we had never talked before. So uh, I got to, you get to meet David as I'm getting to meet David. This is pretty good. I'll catch you on the other side. Okay. As I mentioned, this is always conversation, just conversation. Absolutely. Um, and luckily I'm, I'm at least, well, I'm, I've, Thanks to the Inkhole, I am both familiar with your work uh, in person now, as well as at a distance. Okay. Um, before we started, uh, well, when we were we were texting earlier in the day, yeah. you mentioned that South by Southwest World, as I like to call it, yeah. was a, a career highlight. Yeah, it really was. So a lot of people, I think, are familiar with that, and that was the moment when activations kind of broke through the mm -hmm. popular consciousness. But could you tell us the story of how you got to that point where yeah. you were bringing Sweetwater alive in Austin? Well, there's a lot that I could back up to. You oh, know, let's back up. Yeah. Uh, uh, getting into it. <laughs> but the, the sort of the short jump probably is that 
I'll give you the 60 second version. We can dive deeper if you want to. But I, I started off as a theater person like everybody else did. And after graduating from college and realizing there was no money in changing the world, 99 people at a time, <laughs> I, moved, uh, I moved out to L.A. with my then fiance, uh, became my wife, and we started uh, a career out here as a slave uh, in the uh, motion picture business. And I was very fortunate to, to get a job working with Martin Brest, who was a brilliant uh, producer, director, who had just done Midnight Run, did the first Beverly Hills Cop before that. And I worked with him for 10 years, and I did Scent of Woman and Meet Joe Black and had an extraordinary time. And then that one was sort of like time to move on from there. I worked for a guy for a year that I wasn't going to work for for 10 years. And then I got a job working for Bruce Willis and his partner and was there for five years and produced um, Hostage with them. At that point, I just did 17 years in, in about 30 seconds. <laughs> um, I was really burnt out on the film business. And, what were you um, do? Were you producing? Were you writing? I was, well, so I had grown up, uh, as most everybody does, wanting to be an actor and realized in college that I was an okay actor, but I wasn't a great actor. Mm. And my skills lied elsewhere. I was good at leading people. I was good at directing. I was good at sort of managing, um, you know, as a... Uh, in, in the polit- political end of things, being the student body president and things like that and working for the, representing the campus, all that nonsense. So I was like, I should be something other than an actor. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like... Uh, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Does it sound I'm un- familiar? I'm unfamiliar with yeah. this process. <laughs> yeah. So um, so by the time I got done with, with living in Chicago for a year and a half, not making any money and being miserable, a beautiful town, I just... I wasn't ready to get my ass kicked by life yet. Mm. I was ready to get my ass kicked when I went into uh, the movie business. And, and I did. It was it was hard at the beginning. And a lot of it was a production assistant moving my way up to a production associate, creating that title for myself so I could almost be an associate producer. And then jumping from that title to co-producer of, of Meet Joe Black. So the second five years of working with Marty was I, I really sort of formed a very strong relationship with him. And I was his right-hand guy. So I was running develop for his company. I was doing the two movies on site. I, I like to say I got three PhDs in movie because mm. uh, I was from uh, the the inception of acquiring the material through making the material, post-production, releasing, doing the airline versions of the material for Scent of a Woman, Meet Joe Black, and Hostage. So I really got to know the entirety of the business from soup to nuts. Yeah. And with um, with Willis's company, Cheyenne Enterprises, uh, I was an executive at that company. Um, it, and I did very, very good work there. And I... I had reached a point where I wasn't going to continue there. Um, it was not going to be fun for me anymore. Right. So I moved on. And then when I got out, what I uh, my mother was dying at the time, by the way. So mm-hmm. that was like a part of the thing, too, is like I'm working 100-hour weeks. I want to be with my mother yeah. as she's dying. And I want to be with my father so he doesn't follow her into the grave. And, you know, we got nine more years out of him after that before he passed. So it was a very, very worthy uh, exit strategy from that thing. But once my mother passed smoothly, and once I got my father back up on his feet, then it was like, now what do I want to do? And what I really didn't want to do was go back being like the right-hand guy to somebody who was helping other people make their dreams come true, and never at least having a shot at making my, my own dreams come true. So I went back to that thing of like where I had been like, you know, 18 years before of wanting to write, wanting to direct, wanting to produce my own stuff. So I did. I wrote and produced and directed a short film. Nobody told me the short film shouldn't be 37 minutes long. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> Listen, I was making a masterpiece there, Noah. Okay? It's brilliant. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> Try I getting a 37-minute short programmed into, into a fucking film festival. Like, it's like, not hard. To, it's like, not easy to do. Like I've said before, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> 
having the faintest clue what that process is like. And right around the time I did that, was doing that, I had an old college buddy, Cliff Warner, who I'd gone to Long Beach State with. Um, while I was doing all that stuff at college as a director, Cliff was doing all the same things as a stage manager. So you guys went to, you went to CSU Long Beach. I did. Before it was called CSU Long Beach. That's exactly right. Spielberg. Long there. Beach State. Yeah, he was yeah. there a little bit ahead of me. Yeah. So was Steve Martin. Yeah. Um, great campus, fantastic. One of the best undergraduate programs you could ever hope to have back in those days. Yeah. And then they decided they wanted to be a grad program, and then the undergrad program, as I understand it, went in the toilet after I left, which was a shame, but they've sort of come back up again, which is good to hear. Yeah. Um, but Cliff, my old buddy, uh, had been knocking on my door saying, you should come work with me and my company. And he worked. Uh, he was one of the co-founders of a company called ThinkWell, and um, with Craig Hanna and Francois Bergeron, and, um, and, and then Joe Zenas came in later. Um, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what his company was. Yeah. I didn't know what his company did. I thought they were a scene shop. I, yeah. I, I didn't know what they were. A lot of people who don't, even in the industry, a lot of people don't understand the relationship of companies like Thinkwell and Myco to, to the theme park industry. Correct. And then to just to, to retail, yes. to museum design. Like People don't know that our world is designed yeah, exactly down right. to like a... a, a, a a micro level of detail and that there's brilliant artists who do all of that stuff yeah. you know very thoughtful capable people um and yes i didn't know that existed i didn't even i wasn't really although i enjoyed going to theme parks i wasn't you know the typical theme park foamer like some of our buddies in common i'm sure you you could you could think of um are so i was sort of a guy who was coming in the side door to mm. a business like that and the notion of you know for me what makes me tick is is um, is storytelling and performance, and what I found in the in that business was it was still storytelling. Um, it took me a while to figure out the performance part of it, but it was still storytelling. It was still figuring out how to tell in the Disney words, you know, one story at a time, and and instead of uh, entertaining an audience, you're entertaining guests. So the notion of crafting a guest experience was a new concept to me in terms of trying to manipulate the the moment to moment. What I found in doing that was this was interesting to me was like, oh, this is sort of like all this newfangled stuff at the beginning of virtual reality and people putting on headsets, you know, and cray computers to try to feel like they were inside of something. It was like, oh, this is sort of, I guess, a, a beginning of like what that's supposed to be, I guess. And that sort of stuck in my brain a little bit. So I worked for those guys a little bit, freelancing here and there. Until, while I was finishing my movie, and then I finished my movie, and I was ready to send it to Hollywood and really finally make my stand in, in show business. And um, one of the guys at Thinkwell, who's now one of my partners at, at my co to Seth Cover, called me and said, hey, we're starting this new project, and we'd like you to be a creative director on it. And I was like, well, uh, okay, what's the project? And he said, we're going to design an indoor theater, uh, theme park for Warner Brothers in the Middle East. And I thought, well, that sounds like fun. Sure. That, it pays money too? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'll take it. <laughs> so uh, I, I joined up with them and worked for there like for a year and a half or so. And I was one of um, the original creative directors with uh, Chris Dermick and Dave Cobb and then George um, Walker and, and, and Sam Lundquist and Bob Berenick on sort of uh, Warner Brothers World Abu Dhabi 1.0. Right. Because... We, we had we built this incredible team, um, the 777 team, and um, worked on for a year and a half, two years. 
And then we were like all set to like go into the field when the economy collapsed at the mm. end of 2008. Yeah. And so uh, think well, uh, were mentions they, they did their best to try to keep the team assembled as long as they could until finally, you know, as we know now, it, it, it didn't take a couple of months. It took a couple of years for like the world to course correct. Right. And so um, I ended up moving on from there and they fortunately then got every everything back together again on track and yeah. I'm sure made some changes from what we did but they, they just, just opened in recent yeah. months they opened up the park and it looks yeah. it looks fantastic and you know I, a lot of old friends that worked on that thing I'm so proud of them for yeah. taking it all the way and, and it's fantastic yeah, and, and watching Dave Cobb take a victory lap on that one so, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah and it's great I mean and, and who would deny somebody taking a victory lap I mean yeah. it's, in, it's an incredible yeah. achievement to get anything to the finish line and, and certainly and it's really an indoor theme park yeah. of that scale as to sort of the idea alone has always been to me kind of insane yeah it, 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 it's nuts and I sort of touched a lot of it in that thing because I sort of started off as I was creating directing one land and then I moved to another land then I moved to another area so I touched a lot of the different places that we were working on and one of them where I ended up spending a lot of my time was the uh, what they called the city center back then I'm not sure what it is now but sort of like the main street USA the, the yeah. main artery um, and the notion of trying to create an open span area <laughs> of, uh, of that size is, is pretty cuckoo but um, brilliant yeah. so um, I did that for a couple of years, and then the economy collapsed, and then suddenly I was like, ha, huh, I'm not a young guy, and the world just collapsed. Now what am I going to do? Mm. So I did the only thing a sensible person could do is I went back to producing theater, uh, <laughs> <laughs> writing, writing and directing and, uh, and producing my own plays. I'll have you know that— Sorry. Like, like, it's just because like, you say that, and I'm like, uh, that, that'd be what I would wind up doing too. Because yeah. there's that, there's the drive. It's like you don't want to stop. Yeah. When you're a creative person, that's correct. If you stop, you go into a depression yeah. and then you can't move the ball at all. You, like, and that's yeah. exactly right. The only times I've really gotten, can I swear on this thing? The only times, oh, fuck yeah. The only times I've really gotten fucked up in my life is, is when I've allowed myself to come to a complete stop and be frozen. It happened to me in those Chicago days before I moved out here. Yeah. And it's, paralyzing so the key is you you keep doing and if you keep moving essentially eventually something's going to get moving again mm -hmm. and it did I, I produced a couple of plays fantastic time met some wonderful actors uh, i made all of six dollars on one and lost about a hundred dollars on the other one that, they were that's perfectly really good that's in los really angeles good. that's winning that's, that's uh, amazing that's amazing so God, that was great with numbers like that you'd be running this town at this point correct so um. so then um what happened after that is uh a couple of guys from that 777 team, a producer named Sam Russo, and a guy who was my show director, who then was the creative director for this other thing, called me up and said, hey, come on down and work with us. We're doing this thing in Long Beach. Great. What are you doing? We're doing a Halloween hunt. What is that? It's 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 a Halloween hunt. It's where people go and they get scared and they it's 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 a Halloween hunt, David. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that is. It's like, well, do you know what the Queen Mary is? Yeah, I went to school in Long Beach. Well, we're, will you come down here and meet with us? Sure. So I go down there and I meet with them and there had been a Halloween haunt at the Queen Mary called Shipwreck that had sort of been fantastic for years from what I understand. I never went there. But in the last year or two, they changed teams and it sort of like it fell to pieces mm. and it was like a crash and burn the in 2009. So Tom Clough and um, a gentleman named Robert Kuval, who, who used to work with Nancy Cerruto at Cerruto and Company, uh, had this Halloween project that they um, had been trying to sell elsewhere that they brought to the Queen Mary and the Queen Mary bought it. And it was the relaunch of Halloween in Long Beach. And so the ask was for me to come in there because they knew that I was an organized guy and they knew that I just directed plays and so I must know something about the only actors to come in there and direct the actors. I'm like, 
Direct them to do what? Say boo? I don't understand what you people are asking me to do here. I don't understand the ask. Oh my god! Because uh, I'm, I'm famously, I'm not, I'm not a giant Halloween person. So like, I would have had the exact same. It's like, like jump out of darkness. Like, what else do they got to do? You know, like, do I need a few girls who can scream really loud and a, and a horse guy who whispers? That's exactly right. And yeah. so that was my thing. And then I was like, uh, okay, I'm, I'm not working right now. You guys are my friends. I'll trust you. I'll do this thing. What's the worst thing can happen? So then we got to the audition session, and they told me there was going to be like a thousand people to audition, and I only needed to cast like that year, I think 170 actors, and I think 172 people showed up. <laughs> so, okay, you guys were not correct. Yes, they're hired. And then you have to train them. And so they know how to do this without getting punched. I was like, without getting punched? What are you guys, <laughs> what have you gotten me into? I'm not going to be liable, am I, if they get punched? Correct. Because they're going to get punched. Correct. So jumping through all those things, I ended up doing it that first year, and it ended up being the single most fun I've ever had working on anything Mm. anywhere. And what I really loved initially that first year is I loved the people. I loved the people who were involved in it. I loved their spirit. I loved the sort of like, we're going to figure out how to do this thing together. I'm, I'm a big... You'll hear this probably a lot. I'm a big one team, one dream guy. I, mm. I sign like every email, every post, every meeting signs off one team, one dream. And I, it's not a rah-rah thing. I truly believe it. I truly believe that if we're all on the same team, we can achieve great stuff. Yeah. If everybody's pointing in the same direction, we're going to do great things. And and when and a belief that you know people at heart want to do their best work. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so you trust that that's what it is, and yeah. you give them permission to it, and you give them an expectation that they do it. Yeah. And you, it's like see that hill, take that hill. Yeah. So, you know, then it was like, are we going to come back for a second year or not? And I was at, uh, like, a, a mixer with the friends from year one of Dark Harbor down in Hermosa Beach. We're at a bar. And Sam Russo got a phone call. And he looked up and he said, your buddy Cliff Warner just left Thinkwell. I said, what? He said, yeah, um, I just got an email. And um, so Cliff had decided to go in a different direction and left Thinkwell as I was sort of trying to figure out, am I doing Dark Harbor again? So I had just been there a couple of years ago with me leaving the movie business. So I called Cliff up and said, you want to get a breakfast? We'll talk. And I'd been here before, you know. And so we planned for like, you know, a month or two later, he went and sort of went off and uh, cleared his head and talked to some people and tried to figure out what do I want to do right now? And while he was doing that, I was gearing up for finally getting the pieces in to do Dark Harbor again. So in sort of like the summer of 2011 began sort Mm. of two parallel tracks for me where I was continuing down this road with Dark Harbor, which had been like a one-year thing, and sitting down with my buddy Cliff Warner, and every time I asked him what he wanted to do, he was telling me what we should do, and well, what do you want to name your company? What should we name our company? Well, what kinds of things would you like to do? What kinds of things should we do? And in, in the process of that breakfast and several meetings afterwards, we decided to form this company. Um, and so while we were getting our company off the ground, you know, it, the first thing was sort of like, well, wh- what do we want to be? What do we, wh- what do we want to even do? And uh, the first thing that we both settled in, again, seeing the same target, was we wanted to help passionate people achieve. Mm. It became the vision of our company. Because at the end of the day, if you, if you distilled it down to all the other factors could change, what's really at the core of what we want to do is we want to help mm. passionate people achieve, which means we want to be integral to the process of taking people that really care about what they're doing and allowing them to do their best work in such a way that it's not just a vanity project, but it can become a business. It can yeah. become something that's lucrative so that they can do another one after that. And that's, I mean, that that whole thing about vanity project versus business, I think people 
people can lose sight of that all the time, particularly in theater, yeah. right? And I think there's something that theater teaches you to be to be wary of the Vanity mm-hmm. Project. Um, I once watched someone mortgage their house to produce a production of King Lear and spend far too much money on the production and way too much money on a mailing list to try and get an audience, to try and build a a theater company from scratch on the back of a single production, which opened to empty houses. There were times when there were fewer people in the audience than there were on stage and uh, and the people in the audience uh, were probably your buddies or your family that were coming there to personally support you. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It happens and, a lot. Yeah. And and it's 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 about losing sight of um, harnessing the passion into being an act of communication, to being an act of of you know doing stuff for the audience, doing stuff for for the guests in yes. in the, the framework of theme park world. Correct. Um, and that's one of the things that's interesting about the work in haunts and in activations and in all of the immersive stuff is that from my point of view, it's always about that relationship between the, the performers, the environment and the the audience. Well, you're getting actually to exactly what came to be my understanding of what I was actually doing at dark Harbor. Um, as we moved on was, as I said before, I didn't know what to tell the actress Boo or what. What I found, what I was really doing, and what the opportunity really was, was it was this gigantic canvas to create an immersive experience in which you were taking the performers and you were taking the guests and you were having them interact in the same physical space. Mm-hmm. And that was extraordinarily exciting to me. And I was doing it with people who I was able to pay all of 10 or $11 an hour and who had the skill sets that were widely disparate from trained actors who oftentimes were not the right people to do it, or um, trash collectors and insurance salesmen who were brilliant at it. Do you know what I mean? And trying to find what were the right types of people that could enter that um, sandbox and play well, um, responsibly, and effectively in that sandbox. So that sort of became, that was what I was really doing with Dark Harbor and honing that and uh, expanding that and making it bigger and bigger and more opportunities. And then came entertainment and then came the circus aspect to it. You know, so now I have aerialists and I have uh, magic magicians and sideshow performers and, and all of these other things in addition to that other thing. So when you go to Dark Harbor now, it's, it's we're gearing up for my ninth year. It's this extraordinarily big canvas in a relatively tight footprint that's just very, very alive. And, um, and it's incredible. It's, it's, it, it's a real rush. And it sort of, when you said what led to these things, it was sort of that linchpin. Mm-hmm. Because that was, my, that was my connection to that part of the world where I was doing story and I was doing performance. At the same time, my Kotu was growing, and we were doing more of those uh, traditional type of things you would think about, you were talking about, we think about theme parks and museums and entertainment centers and stuff is we were growing that part of the business at the same time, yeah. you know. And um, a good friend of ours from, from past associations, Danny Hardigan, came to us in like, I think, our sec- in our second year with this project that had been uh, building some steam elsewhere um, that was ready to go, but they didn't really know how to do it. They didn't have the team, the producers and stuff. So Danny came to Myco2 and sat with Cliff and Seth Cover and myself around a table and you know, figured out like how would you how would you basically build a team from scratch 
to do a project, which I, I, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly unorthodox in terms of you, because usually you have a company and a team that's built that then gets the project and they do right. the thing. This was a project ready to go, but with nobody to do it. So um, uh, doing the heavy, I, I, I'm there for, you know, good looks and, and jokes, you know, Seth and, and, and Cliff for the real, you know, <laughs> nuts and bolts guy. They sort of figured out a plan of like, if, if, if you were to build this team, in Los Angeles, here are the things you'd have to do. And Danny took it back to the powers that be on his end, and they said, great, do it. And what do you mean do it? You guys do it. Who guys do it? You, Danny, and those guys might go to do it. So we did. We we started off in Cliff's house. We'd moved from the garage to the living room, which I, I felt was really an accomplishment. Um, but then we poured like 35 or 40 people into Cliff's house, sitting on the in the living room and the dining room and on the porch and around the pool and in the garage and in the driveway um, while we were building this thing up until we finally got some office space that we could make a good deal for for a couple of years um, in Pasadena and ultimately built up a team of 150 incredibly talented people and um, oversaw the, the design of two theme parks, uh, Bollywood Parks and Motion Gate for um, Dubai Resorts. And I was the lead creative on one of the parks uh, with my partner Free Forge and Dumb, and uh, Danny and Cliff were the executive creative and executive producer for both parks. Seth became the uh, uh, lead producer on the Motion Gate. And we took these two projects from um, uh, concept through SD and DD until we said, we're, we're done, we're good here, you guys can go make the thing, which they did, and they both opened. Um, and uh, one of the parks uh, that Seth was overseeing, the DreamWorks Park, uh, won a the award last year, which was lovely for everybody. Um, so we were doing all of that while we were also building the company with these other projects in Kuwait and New York City, while I was also doing Dark Harbor and basically ready to have a nervous breakdown because that's, of course, as life will do it for you. That's when my father started his right. rapid decline and my kids were leaving the house and my wife and I were, it was falling apart. And like 2014 became one of those crash and burn years. My yeah. wife and I ended up getting divorced. We yeah. have a happy ending. We're best friends with each other. We vacation with our family. It's all good. Um, but it was like one of those things that was just a, a kapow. Yeah. Um, and when, it, when it comes, it sometimes feels like someone's someone's taken out the linchpin on the Jenga of your life, and like and it and it all just. And seemingly unrelated. It's like, why is it all happening at once? It, it yeah. is. And, and you sit there and you, you, you tempt the fates and say, going so well, what could possibly be happening? Yeah. You know, and then kaboom. Yeah. But what I had learned along the way in, in the theater business, uh, film business especially, is, you know, the first time you get knocked on your ass, it really, really hurts. Yeah. And you can think to yourself, I don't want to do this anymore. But if you can manage to stand up and dust yourself off and get back on the horse and start riding again, the next time it's not that big a deal. Yeah. You just you sit there and go, okay, that really fucking sucked. Now yeah. I have to get my shit together and keep going. If you can have scar tissue on your ass, you don't feel anything. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And I've got a big <laughs> ass full of scar tissue. Um, so, so that's just sort of like how, you know, Dark Harbor was getting to be really cool and Myco 2 was getting to be really cool and they were all sort of playing together nicely. And then... Out of that Dubai thing, then a couple of things started to to pay off with Dark Harbor. Dark Harbor led to the Queen Mary, instead of asking me just to 
direct the talent uh, for their holiday event, they asked us to design a big attraction for them. So we designed, installed, ran talent, did all the stuff for a, a project called Alice in Winterland, which was a walkthrough uh, in the holidays uh, in the dome. It took the place of an ice kingdom mm. that the uh, the new owners had decided they were not going to do, and it turned off that contract before they'd figured out what are we going to do in this place. Mm. So we helped them do that. And then on the heels of that, uh, Six Flags had asked us to do a maze for them, so we designed and installed Aftermath 2 Chaos Rising at their park, which was very cool. And then on the heels of that, a guy named Patrick Jong at um, Giant Spoon called me out of the blue and said, hey, I got your name from the woman who's the head of human resources at the Queen Mary, who's an old friend of mine. I need some actors for the thing. I figured you might be the person. And I was like, okay, sure, what is this thing? And he described to me this activation that his company, Giant Spoon, was doing for the upcoming Blade Runner 2049 at Comic-Con. So I didn't know what Giant Spoon was. I didn't know what an activation was. I had seen Blade Runner some 30 years ago and found it a little bit more boring than everybody else did. Um, And uh, I had never been to Comic-Con. So the only answer I could possibly give was, sure, let's do it. And it was jumping into a pool that I'd never been in before. But one of the nice things about getting older is you you stop fearing the water. You know, it's just like, great, it's a pool, it's an opportunity, let's jump in and see what it is. And we'll figure it out. And I'm just arrogant and cocky enough to think I'll usually probably figure out something. And if I surround myself with good people, then they'll figure it out for me and I'll just look good. So stop laughing at me. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm laughing with you. <laughs> so um, we, we did this thing really not knowing like what the ask completely was, but I sort of right. got it. He, he wanted actors. He wanted them in costume and makeup. He wanted them inside this tent to make people that were coming through Comic-Con to feel like they were in the movie. And when I started sort of saying those things back to myself, I was like, wait a second, this is... Th- this is exactly what I've been talking about. This yeah. is exactly what I want to do. Now I'm taking that physical location and I'm taking performance and I'm doing what Dark Harbor is, but through a, a more narrow eye of the needle with only my best guys. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I don't have to get 35 or 350 people there. I just need to get 30 people there. Yeah. Just for clarification's sake, because uh, I like, I'm a little confused uh, on, on the flow here. Was that, did you run that project through MyCo2 or did, was that run that, did that run through sort of Dark Harbor? Because you do have these parallel right. tracks going on. Sure. So let me clarify that, and then let me, let me clarify the Myco 2 Giant Spoon and all, all good things. So Dark Harbor sort of started off outside of uh, Myco 2 the first year, and then it took us a couple of years to figure out how they would allow me to not be an employee of theirs but a vendor of theirs right. that then allowed me to run Dark Harbor and Chill through Myco 2. So uh, Myco 2, Dark Harbor and all those projects to Queen Mary are now done as a Myco to vendor to the ship. Right. It's the same exact thing with the Giant Spoon relationship. Giant Spoon is a brilliant company. Um, I've come to find uh, their, their owners, Mark and John and Trevor, are outstanding guys. Um, Patrick and David Jacobson and Taylor, the, the different producers I work with are, and directors are fantastic people. And th- they have these relationships because they're a marketing agency with the studios. So they have these existing relationships. They go out and pitch the big idea and they figure out all kinds of shit that I don't know about because all I, my only truth that I can tell you is my perspective. So right. I can tell you all the things that I see and touch, but I'm 
conscious enough to know that there are other people that do fantastic things. They they have a scene shop that builds the Blade Runner Westworld. That's not what I'm doing. There's some other talented people that are doing that. Um, I'm going to lay another quote on you. My favorite quote of all time. When I was just starting out, there was a theater company in Chicago called Steppenwolf Theater Company. John Malkovich, Gary Sinise, all these guys. And one of like, if you looked at their all-stars, like the 14th guy would probably be an actor named Jeff Perry, who's still a wonderful actor, but he doesn't get nearly the attention that other actors do. However, they quoted him in the Los Angeles Times like 30 years ago. And they asked him, what, what made you guys start a theater company out of college? And his first answer was, we were all scared to audition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but once he got done being a smartass, he said, here's the truth. It was rare. It is rare. It shall always be rare for a group of people to agree that what they can create together is greater than what they can create alone. And it was one of those moments where I read something and I said, that. Yeah. You know, and so when I talk about any of the things that I did or we did or anybody did, there, nothing's ever a, a David Wally project or a Myco 2 project or a Giant Spoon project or an anything project. It's always, the, if, if it's done well, it's always an amalgam of this collaboration between a lot of people who yeah. are touching this thing. And so... Well, and those projects that you guys have done together, uh, particularly that sort of that, that triumvirate of... You guys at Myco 2, Giant Spoon, and ZH yeah. as a scene shop. I mean, that's Blade Runner, that's Westworld, that's Inkhole. Yeah. And those have, there, there's something about each of those that has cracked through yeah. into the, you know, beyond the, the marketing world, beyond the, the pop culture world. Just, it's managed to stand up. I mean, watching, and, and the funny thing is, is like, you know, this is all. This is all in the, like the past year and couple of months, right? Yeah. Like it, it's this August. It's still August. How is it still August? Yeah. This is August. Blade Runner was a year and a month ago. That's correct, right? And yeah. and it's just and what's gone in that past in that amount of time has just. I think people are are raising these standards, and it's uh, in terms of what's possible with the activations and it's in a large part because of what you guys have done and i think so i i, I think you know with without too much tooting our own horns because i think there's there's you, you you run a site called no proceedium you're you're all about immersive and mm-hmm. there's all kinds of immersive being done from little teeny weeny things to to bigger more exploded things it's um th- so there's a lot of people going at this same space i think that what's very interesting about that triumvirate you talked about is uh, it's it's sort of like people playing a great tennis match where they're they're lobbing the ball back and forth to each other and sometimes the game picks up speed and you see how good you can get handing it back and forth because you're collaboratively doing that you know it's like they're coming up with this big idea and then they're saying okay now we need another player to come in and and figure out the 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 story and the acting and we need another company to come in and figure out the design and the and the build and working in concert with those people in collaboration with, the, with, with those people understanding that you know it, it, none of us are owning that lane all to ourselves mm-hmm. we're, we're we're driving back and forth with each other on that lane and we're passing the ball back and forth and something that i'm coming with is going to spur something that they're thinking about and then they're going to come back to me and then i'm going to turn to the brilliant people that i work with and say oh here's this thing they're thinking about oh what have you thought about that that's brilliant i hadn't thought about that does that process feel if you, if you had to choose between the two forms, does it feel more similar to making a film or making a theater project? I mean, I know there's the, there's the fact that it's a live work and that brings in you know, that part of it, but just in terms of the collaborative process, I'm curious there. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a very interesting question, actually, Noah, because in the theater, for the most part, 
you know, you, you do have lighting designers, set designers, but when you're at rehearsals and stuff, director, writer, cast, boom, leave us alone. And that's sort of the piece that I'm doing with these things in a way. In film, though, you, you, you have that piece, but you also have cinematographer, production designer, costume designer, editor, crew, this, that's this army that you have to lead to do this thing, which is more like what these things are. It, mm. it takes so many people to touch these things. And, you know, I, I can tell you about the Westworld experience, which is probably sort of the zenith uh, of experiences for me, because so much of it was like, you know, it started with this ballsy ass sell that or handshake that HBO and Giant Spoon did with each other. Like, yeah, we'll, we'll just create um, Sweetwater. I was like, <laughs> you said what? Okay, do, do you know what that means? <laughs> yeah, we do. Okay, good. Well, I do too. Are we going to do that together? Yes, we are. Okay, well then let's go. And it's such an ambitious um, statement to make. You know, but yeah. once I started talking to them and it was sort of like knew the things that they were working on, their 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 big piece of it. Of, of That is one of them, by the way. You're, I see your eye line going to the black well, hat. Yeah. I'm also I'm eyeballing <laughs> it so much because I wanted a black hat so bad oh, no, I'm and sorry. I never got one. No, but I'm the sorry. last day they surprised me. They got me a white hat and everybody in the cast signed it and they made me do something I never do outside of the movies, which is manipulated by music. I started bawling like a baby. Aww. It was it was a it was such an expe- uh, exceptional thing. But what happened with with Westworld was the 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 expectation before that was Blade Runner, which was fantastic. But Blade Runner was like I was doing it with thirty people that I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a tent, and we ha- sort of had to create the street, and we had to create the 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 noodle bar area, and keep that alive with costumes from the movie. Not a lot of dialogue, very limited dialogue. It wasn't that big of an ask in terms of like what I knew how to do um, and knew how to get the right people and collectively we did a great job. Westworld, like the first thing that Patrick Chung said to me was, and you cannot take all of your people to Austin. And we negotiated back and forth and I was able to bring my team, a stunt coordinator, and we got up to seven actors of the 51 I was going to need. So I knew that I was going to be doing this project in Austin with two days rehearsal with 51 actors, 44 of whom I never knew before with stunts. And we were going to... Do you need a drink? Because I need a drink. Just hearing that. (laughs) And it wasn't going to be a tent. It was going to be two acres. And it wasn't going to be two locations right next to each other. It was going to be 11 disparate locations. And the more we talked, we talked about where do we want to have activations with actors. And great. And how how long should this loop be? Because, you know, Westworld's like, you know, a daily loop. What should our loop be? It should be like 90 minutes. That sounds about right. That's a good guest experience. And then if they see it starting again, they'll do it. And then, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so the more that I sort of made these deals, with them yeah that's what we need to do exactly then you start penciling it out it's like wait a second i i I just agreed to write 51 characters in 11 locations over a 90 minute duration that repeats six to seven times a day and i don't want those actors to just be planted there i want them to move and intersect with each other wow that's 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 going to take some doing yeah and i don't know these people Wow, that's going to take some doing. So I said, okay, we need to, we need to, <laughs> we need to go fast. And what I really need more than anything is, uh, we had a great time on Blade Runner. I need you guys to trust me, and I need to trust you guys. And we need to hold hands and say we're going to do this, but we're not going to do the normal back and forth contemplating our enabled notes. I'm going to do stuff. You guys are going to give me notes. I'm going to keep marching down the field. Does that sound good? Yes. 
and we need to get casting now. This was like all like in the run up to, you know, by the time the deal got done, we were in early December. It's like, I need to know who the cast is before Christmas. Okay. So we'll hire a casting director and we'll go to Austin. We'll cast this thing three days before Christmas. Sounds good, which we did. So we hired a casting director and she put the word out great, did a great job and got all these tapes in from not just Austin, but Houston and Dallas and Oklahoma and, and Arkansas, all these areas that sort of like could touch that area. All these people submitted and I watched all of those videos before the auditions. So, and I knew all of the people that I was really interested in down to their nuances. So like, you know, when somebody came in the room, I say, like, hey, Noah, how you doing? That's fantastic to see you here. And you know, that first time it's like, oh, that's so flattering. He knows who I am. And then the next person came in and was like, hey, Tamika, how you doing? Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, Judy, how are you? Good to see you here. And I was like, wait a second, this guy knows everybody. You know, it was a trick I'd learned at Dark Harbor. It's like, if you know everybody's names, A, you're prepared, you know who you're dealing with. But B, they look at you and say, holy shit, this guy has his shit together. Yeah. I, I, I can't fuck up. He's going to yeah. know who I am. Yeah. You know, and it's also, I think it's the level of preparedness that it's like, okay, I'll step up and I'll meet that, that bar. So we spent two days casting in Dallas, in Austin rather, and walked out of there. Uh, David Jacobson, who was producing it with me, uh, sort of held hands, had disagreements about a couple of actors, worked it out, and then came up with the cast list. We're going to go out to these people. Yes, great. And all but two of them made it through that process. There was one person who who, who it didn't work out with another person who, who wasn't able to do it because they booked another thing. But essentially, we had picked our cast. That's, that's great odds when you're casting that many people. That's exactly right. Yeah. So now we're in early January. I have my cast, and I have all these incredible auditions on videotape, a lot of which included them, because what we asked them to do, they thought they were doing the Pride of Texas at that point. They, did, <laughs> they, they, they didn't know they were doing Westworld. I love it. They didn't know they were doing Westworld until it. they were hired and then signed an NDA. And in yeah. fact, there's a Facebook group that exists on Facebook called the Pride of Texas thing that all of them still belong to and still talk to each other. I'm on it every day called the Pride of Texas because that's where it started. Um, so the, one of the asks in the audition was, think about these things with your character and tell me about the best day of your life or the worst day of your life in this thing. And some of them came in with these beautifully rendered performances that was like gold. And it was like, well, that's your character, you know? And so I sort of plopped down some of these things that people had said all over, you know, my office thinking about, okay, that's, there's something there, there's something there. And then I said to myself, okay, how am I going to do this? I have to have, so if it's 90 minutes, I'm going to break it up into six scenes, three act structure. And I've got to have rising action and crossing things and that means they each have to be about 15 minutes. Some of it's going to be audience interaction. I'm probably going to need 10 to 12 page of written words. I better just start writing. And I started writing a scene in each location in each of the six tiers. And I got done with the first one. And I was like, all right, I'm going to send it to those guys. I hope they like it, but I'm going to keep writing. And it took them about a week, week and a half to get feedback to me, at which point I was like, great, I'm almost done with the second scene. I'll send that to you in two days. And sort of started this thing where... The notes that were coming back were good. Mm -hmm. They were minimal. They were supportive. The big note was keep going. And by the time I got done with about half of it, I looked at the page count. And I was like, oh, fuck. Okay. Okay. This is going to be okay. And got after like the end of the second act, and I've done four of the big scenes, got permission to, yes, you can share with the actors now because the, the page count and they have yeah. to learn it. Yeah. So they said, okay. And so I started sharing it with the cast. So now I've got not just the reader, Giant Spoon, my producer, and maybe he's sharing with HBO at this point. I don't know yet. But now I've got 51 people who are vested in this thing that are going to be reading the thing. And 
they were loving it and that it was resonating with them of what we were having their characters do, but who the other people were. So it was like, okay, I, th I think I'm going in the right direction. I trust I am. And I got into that third act and something really, really strange happened to me. I knew from the beginning in the casting that one guy, this guy, Frank Delacorte, and Frank Delacorte walked into auditions, just this swaggering dude just walked up and said, where's these auditions at? And I was like, fuck, that guy's Frank Delacorte. Frank Delacorte was like the baddest ass in town, the man in black, fastest gun in the wet, you know, indomitable spirit, the, the soul of the town. I knew that Frank Delacorte was going to take down these bad guys, these guys who were in town to rob the bank. And the bad guys was this band of misfits a little bit, and Carl Jenkins was the big blustery guy, but he was kind of fun. And Patty Wainwright, who was the female band leader, was really tough. It's like, I didn't want to bring them down. They're, they're in cahoots with these corrupt town leaders. I want them to get away with the money. I want them to fuck over the town leaders. So I can't kill them. So if I'm going to kill, like, who, who could I possibly kill that would have any resonance? And I realized, oh, shit, I got to kill Frank. I got to kill my hero. I was like, but shit, how... How can, how can I do that? How can I make it believable? Who could possibly kill Frank Delacorte in this thing I've set up? The only person who could possibly kill Frank Delacorte would be somebody who shoots him in the back, a guest. And I realized, oh, I've got a cast of characters who are this own species, who are these hosts. Right. And I've embedded this, this programmer for Delos who's hiding among them to keep an eye on things. I hadn't thought to add guests. And then I realized, oh, these guys who are embedded with the bank robbers, they're guests. They're, they're playing Westworld. Yeah. They're having fun. And then it was like, oh, shit. That's what this whole thing is. This whole thing is there's these two poachers who've come out to the Serengeti to kill the pride of his pack. That's, that's what it is. That's what, that's what resonates. That's, what the, that's the parallel to the show. Mm. And so... I was like 90% of the stuff I didn't have to change at all at that point. I just went back and tweaked a couple of little scenes to take out things that would make it not be that because of some dialogue stuff. And I moved forward and I got to the end of the fifth of six scenes and sent it to everybody. And then I got to the final scene, which is the scene where everybody rushes out to the, to the back and Frank gets shot and the, the fans come out, the guests come out and they're celebrating their kill and everything. And now I've had the 51 actors reading along with me. I've had Giant Spoon reading along with me. I've had HBO reading along with me. I've had my Myco 2 collaborators <laughs> reading along with me. And I haven't told anybody I'm doing this. And then I sent in Send with the 16 to see how it came back. And um, the actors were almost immediate. Like some of them were laughing out loud. It was such a great fun twist. And some of them were crying. They love Frank so much. And this, that, and that other thing. And I'm waiting to hear back from from giant spoon and hbo and the show because at this point once i did the sixth thing they were sent it to the show people and uh tara who's my stage manager on all these things uh and i were carpooling she lives nearby me and i got in the car and she's like the bubbliest most hippie positive energy person in the world and she's like completely stone-faced and driving for like five minutes like you doing okay yeah <laughs> it's like another 10 minutes i just turn on the radio you know, not speaking to me. And she finally reached over and turns on the radio and says, we're in a fight. And I said, what are you talking about? We're in a fight. Yeah. You got me to love Frank Delacorte, and then you just go and you kill him? And she just wailed at me. You were writing a Dickensian uh, Western serial for, I like, was, weeks on end. I was, but here's the problem. That's exactly what I was doing in my little hole. Never thinking to myself, what the fuck? I have to mount this thing now. Yeah. And so the Giant Spoon people were fantastic, supportive. They loved it. 
couple of notes, took care of them. They sent it off to HBO. Wonderful, fantastic. They loved it. Keep going. Just worried about some things, you know, that had to be in line with stuff. And then it was like, okay, let's hope it gets past the show. Show came back, the same thing. Really smart notes, a couple of things that they wanted toned down a little bit here or there. Totally understood why, made the thing. But basically, what I said to them is we have to know by this date that everything's locked so that then I can give it to the actress and say, this is a locked script. Please learn it as best you can. Yeah. Because I'm going to fly to Austin on Sunday, and we're going to have a costume fitting on Monday, and then we're going to have two days of rehearsal, and then we're going to perform it for the press, and then we're going to do it three days for the public, and it's going to be over. And everybody needs to show up ready to go. I have to take a moment just to like like this this is the only problem with activations of course is like when when they hit those peaks and then they're completely ephemeral and yeah. then they're gone yeah you know? but it's part of the brigadoon of it all a little yeah. bit I mean we got a little bit of an extension on Inkhole which was fantastic that it, it ran an extra weekend so we were able to like double the amount of people that saw it that was fantastic but yeah I would have loved to have had another weekend of, of Westworld that would have been cool yeah um, so basically all of these things, I've shown them the script, I've written them notes, I'm directing by email for two months, and the last thing I did is I sat down and I plotted out the blocking for every single character in every single scene for 450 pages and sent that to them. So they had their words, they had their blocking, and hopefully they paid attention. I came in um, on Sunday night. On Monday night we had fittings, had... Uh, had uh, dinner with my guys from LA. They were sort of busting my balls a lot about, oh, there's a script. Were we supposed to read a script? And I'm like sort of getting a little twitchy at this point. It's like, this isn't something to fuck around with, guys. You better show up tomorrow ready to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Came in the next day, 51 people, 90% of whom have never met each other before. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. And Bonnie Hallman, my incomparable right-hand person, is going to take some of you over here. And Tim McAlecki, my brilliant... Um, stunt coordinator is going to take the stunt guys and do this. I'm going to march everybody through what the blocking is. Lila and Tara are available for notes and blah, 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 blah. Let's go. And so I start walking people through town, placing them in their scenes, shaping them a little bit, while, you know, the people who have built this thing are, you know, between the actors hammering nails and sawing things and throwing gravel in the thing and doing the last paint because these poor people had to install the thing during like a two and a half week monsoon that went through Austin. It literally poured every single day for like two weeks while they were putting this thing in. I I remember overhearing a few phone calls about that. It was, it was, it was incredible. And so we showed up these incredible people like sunburned and just worked to, to their bone to get it that far. But it's like, you know, this is like broadcast news, you know, where you're racing to get the thing, the tape in to go live. Yeah. Everybody was doing that. Because also, like, you guys are, for, for those who maybe are, are, are not paying attention to the timeline here, the timeline is not, oh, whenever you feel like opening up this activation, the timeline is South by Southwest. That's exactly right. Nothing's moving. Yeah. There's an, it's, it's, it's the D-Day invasion, you know, and you're going to hit that date and you're going to die or you're going to live. Yeah. So as I'm putting people around town um, and I'm blocking people, I'm noticing that Almost without exception, nobody's looking at their script. They're just sitting here playing their scenes with each other. I had 51 people, and 47 of them were word perfect on a 450-page script. Word perfect. And the four who weren't that were looking at stuff were looking around and would walk up to me at some point during the day saying, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be off book by tomorrow morning. I said, I know you will. It's cool. Thank you. Yeah. They were ready to go. And because they were ready to go, because they were prepared, because my team and I were prepared, because Giant Spoon was prepared, because ZH was prepared, everybody showed up ready to go, you know. And then 
these two days, how are we going to get it all done in two days? By the end of the second day of rehearsal, it was like, we need some actor, We need some guests now. Mm. You know, because I, for all of the stuff that I'd scripted was the piece that you cannot script, that nobody can script. You cannot script what's going to be an interaction between yeah. the artist and, and, and the audience. This stuff comes alive. Like I always say, like if you can run the whole thing without the audience, you're not really making immersive. And no, because all you're doing then is you're just mounting a play, which yeah. is the same type of, you know... Um, uh, it's not masturbatory, but but it is one way. It, it's it's a voyeuristic experience as yeah. opposed to an experiential uh, experience. I don't think you can say experiential experience, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, don't worry, we're not doing the drinking game version <laughs> of it. We did not just cause several accidents. So, exactly. Uh, <laughs> um, so so what happened was again one of those things that was just kismet was we tried to figure out how could the people have their friends and family come see it mm. but we had such a limited amount of time and space because you had to load people in buses back in austin take the half hour secret drive on a bus out the thing so there was limited parking there so what we decided to do weeks in advance was we let everybody have their people come for the second half of the second day of rehearsal so it just happened that right when we needed to see what would it be like with guests, we had them there nice. to start playing with. And that was where the other piece came. And then we had the time to sort of massage that stuff. Like, okay, that was good with that one, but you're really trying to stick too much to the script at that point. D don't, don't fight the experience. If they want in, let them in. And then trust that you're going to know where to get back to. Yeah, 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 but no, trust me. It, try it. You're going to be fine. And they try it. It's like, oh, that was fucking great. That was like exhilarating. And so what happened was if we did our 90-minute loop seven times a day for three days plus the night, we probably did it 25 times. And that means there were 25 completely different loops that never could be replicated if you tried to. And even if I was this all-important, all-powerful person, it's physically impossible for me to be in all places and all times. So the, the, the control freak has to trust the people around him who are fantastic and the people around them who are fantastic and the people who are over there doing a completely different thing than I'm doing and all of these actors to own it and be actor, writer, director, producer in the same moment making instantaneous choices that will keep the guest involved in this big, massive thing that we're doing together. When you set out to write a script for something like that, are you are you mapping out the relationships of the characters to each other? Is, is that where it begins? Was it, Or was it you just started off on the scenes and were tracking as you were going? Like, was it planned or was it emergent or a little back and forth? Well, so for... For Blade Runner, what I did was I sent everybody this sort of like actor 101 character dialogue of like trying to figure out who they are, what their relationships are, what are key adjectives, you know, so they can play with different things in rehearsal as a starting point for them to think about who they are. I gave that to them. They came up with it. It was fantastic for that one. That's what it was. With Westworld, it was such a complex world that I couldn't trust them to come up with it completely on their own. I had to at least give them some framework. So what happened with Westworld was it started off with a character name, an archetype, and a brief description. So um, Carl Jenkins, the bad guy who I want to fuck with, was Carl Jenkins, not the guy to fuck with, and then described what his relationship was in town. I had that piece of it, and a photo reference from the 1870s was like, that's what I showed to Giant Spoon in Westworld and said, this is who my cast is, times 51. Mm -hmm. And then we went into auditions and picked the person to play it. So then Christian Stokes became Carl Jenkins, 
And then I started writing scenes, and then it became a collaborative process between what was the framework, how was I fleshing out that framework, what was he bringing to that fame framework. So by the time we're then in those two days of rehearsals, Carl Jenkins is becoming something different than what Christian might have thought of as his own or what I wrote. It's becoming what he is. And then he's bumping up against Patty Rainwright with Tamika Soretti, who I've done the same thing with. So you're taking all of these people who are taking what the source material is, what they bring to it, how it smashes against other characters, and then finally how they deal with actors, uh, uh, guests coming through town. We had guests who were getting in the middle of the love triangle between Jimmy Sweeney, Mackie Jeffers, and um, and and Betty uh, Betty Landers. And so... You know, when I had uh, Mackie Jeffers coming out and going, Jimmy! Jimmy Sweeney! You know, people going up to him saying, Mackie, how are you, man? What's going on? How, what happened with you and Jimmy? You guys used to be friends. Wanting to join in his storyline. I had guys coming up to Jimmy Sweeney wanting to pick a fight with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because of what he'd done to poor Betty. You know, so uh, there, there, we had people who were digging for clues that Giant Spoon had buried in the cemetery. People who were digging fucking, te- you know, six-foot graves, <laughs> looking yeah. for a token or a photograph <laughs> or a this or it was it was insane. Um, but it was it was one of those things where every everybody just bought into the thing, including ultimately the guests, and it it became an experience that I, I think it would be hard pressed for anybody to achieve that sort of uh, magic in the bottle again. Right. It, even if you tried to do Westworld again with the same people, you know, the show has moved on from that moment. You know, the show that took has, yeah. uh, quite a different turn in season two that like the 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 the, the purity, the, <laughs> the, the innocence of Sweetwater doesn't exist anymore. So, um, and there's too much information now. And, you know, you could assemble that same cast. You could do Giant Spoons, E.H., uh, Michael too again. Trying to redo the same experience would be hard to do. But we were informed by all of those experiences and all those relationships and all that trust and were able to do something completely different with something like Inkhole, you know, which, you you know, you you take in, okay, how do we do that one? And the first thing you say is, well, I'm not going to approach it like Westworld because it's not Westworld. It's like, what does this one need, you know? And how do you bring this one to life? And how do you make this one capture the spirit and the essence of of what it's associated to and what it's supposed to be helping to market. Something like Inkhole, like the the number one comment I got from friends were like, oh God, I just wish this was always here. I know. You know, like this would be a great place to just exist. And and in the back of my head, I mean, you know, Brian Henson and Puppet Up, like, there's a part of me that's like, well, if they really wanted to, like, yeah. you could you could charge, like, $30 cover and, you know, two-drink minimum, and I think people would hang out in a spot like that, you know? I think that's true. I, I think that then the question would obviously, as with any businesses, is, like, what's the duration of something like that? So yeah. would it exist uh, successfully for a couple of months, like, or a great play that goes for a year, or could it be, like, a business that goes on and on in, into perpetuity? I don't know the answer to that. I do know that there is, I, I had that same thing I was seeing with different guests of like that, that there was a desire to, to have it be a regular thing, that you could be a member of that club, that you could come, you know, once a week or once a month or a couple of times a year. And there wasn't a person that went through the ink hole that didn't have just a big shitting and grin on their face. Oh, massively. Know? Massively. Yeah. Even even like I just I wound up getting parked at the blackjack table, but I went on the best blackjack run of my life and I'm like, why isn't this real money? <laughs> exactly. I was up like three or four grand. I'm like, I need this. This is fake money. This is not good. This yeah. is great, but it's not Yeah. Yeah. Um but but that actually that that question is lingering here because right now there's so much 
so much emphasis uh, is being put into these activations because they're very splashy. They get those media, they get the media hit. They get mm-hmm. attention in yeah. a way that like almost nothing else can. Right. They they breed the Instagram hits right. in a in a big way, and, and the money's coming from um, from the studios to promote traditional media properties, and that's mm-hmm. how they're going to recoup those costs. Mm-hmm. But there, you have the experience of Dark Harbor and of, of seasonal events. And I think you're working on uh, Warner's uh, yeah. on the Warner lot this year, yeah. um, doing the horror made, horror here. made here. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's a line of the business that's happening. But do you have an an instinct or an inkling that there's a market for these sort of elaborately de- developed, rich worlds that people can kind of run around in, independent of and sustainably independent of the marketing stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that the, what you're really saying at the end of the day is, is there the de' Medici out there, you know, to fund these things, you know, the the Hollywood producer or the real estate developer or the studio, because ultimately, you know, to get really good people, to get really good actors, to get really good design and stuff like that, it costs money. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, unless you're doing like a black box type of thing where it's really, it's more about the idea. But because you're going to charge a lower ticket price. I mean, there's this company on on um, Lancashire Boulevard, a theater company called Zombie Joe's Underground, run mm-hmm. by Zombie Joe. Yeah. You know, and he does these incredibly, incredibly creative, wonderful things in like a, a space that's inside of a postage stamp with like two lighting instruments and one bad sound speaker and twelve daring actors who take their clothes off and rub blood all over themselves. That's exhilarating theater, but it's fifteen dollars a head, and that that's. Nobody's going to get rich doing that, but right. it, it's fun to do. Um, you do have the studios who are doing those things, um, and I think what the success has been um, for the ones that we've done with them so far, Blade Runner and Incole and 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 um, and Westworld, is ultimately they've trusted us to let us create something that's cool, you know, on its own, you know, and. And not put the onus on us to have to do the hard sell. You know, we're not the ones telling people to buy the car. We're just the ones that are making the car look beautiful that people want to buy. You know what I mean? Somebody else is 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 doing the hard sell, and because we're allowed to just make things that are really really cool, I think that has allowed them to have the chance to be really really cool. That mm. what you're pointing to though is they are ephemeral. You know, they don't have an extended life. So could they exist in a, in a business plan outside of that? I'd like to think they could. Um, I think that from the buzz I'm hearing from some friends, it sounds like Disney's going after that a little bit with the new Star Wars land. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. I, I, Knott's, I, of course, already has Calico going. And, which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, then, and I know this from, from my, my haunt world, is that then it's sort of like, are your stakeholders willing to let you do really cool work? Or do things then become corporatized a little bit of like, okay, but now that we're doing it for every day and now people are paying, it's like you can't do this and you can't say that and you can't uh, blah, 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 and you can't blah, blah, blah. And then you end up having a sanitized version of something that may not be as interesting. Right. So for me, it, I, I think the two, the two linchpins that would allow it to happen are three linchpins. One, you have to have uh, the financial backing that somebody that can see you could do this. Two, those people have to be able to give you the artistic freedom to do the things that are cool. 
And then the third piece is you, you have to find, is there an audience that's willing to go and pay for it as opposed to just get it for free? Yeah. Um, it's amazing how many entitled people were upset with us occasionally on some of these things that, you know, they didn't get their fourth drink or they didn't get to do this or they didn't get, or they had to wait in line for 10 minutes for their free experience. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, that's when it, it's funny. It's like when it's free, there's even like more sense of entitlement. I mean, there's parts of this. There's parts of this because we have you know Sleep No More in New York and it's been mm-hmm. running like a very long time and then they opened it up in Shanghai yeah. and that, and you know China's a different market so some things are sanitized and some things are and, are and apparently in. some people are of different minds I love Sleep No More I, yeah. I I could have if my legs would have let me I would have spent another three hours in there yeah. you know um I, my daughter just went to see it and she loved it so I I think it's a very cool thing I think that there can be versions of that I think yeah. there can be more than one Sleep No More the 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 one that had me even thinking there was such an idea as an immersive experience with Dark Harbor in the beginning was way back in the day when I was in college, there was a, a production of a show called Tamara yep. uh, up in up in LA here that all took place in this one home. And it was basically Sleep No More of its time. Um, so it's not like it's exactly a brand new thing that all of us are doing. It's just, I think now more people are doing it and more people are finding um, agency and, and compelling you know, um, reasons to do them, you know, and for me as a theater guy, as I, I told you growing up is like, for me to sit in a chair and have a voyeuristic experience with something isn't as interesting to me anymore, unless it's really, really good. And it's like, yeah. I just want to sit back and watch you do this thing. To me, what's really, really exciting is feeling like I'm in it. And I think that's where we've succeeded really, really well with Inkhole and Westworld and Blade Runner is that when you entered these worlds, you felt like you were inside the world. You were inside the experience. You were bumping up against it. And I think that's the hunger for people. I think that's what they're going after with VR and have not really completely found that yet because it still takes away a lot of your senses. These activations don't take away any of your senses. They bring you alive. Sometimes too much. We had one guy who at Westworld was going around stealing people's guns and grabbing people and stuff. And I had one of my older actors, Mike Gassaway, who's 75 years old and can kick anybody on this planet's ass, was dressed. He was the poker dealer who at the end is dressed in the QA outfit and he comes up in this white hazmat suit with this guy by the arm just dragging him during the press night. It's like, this guy has to go. And I said, what's going on, Mike? This is the guy who stole the gun. Now he's going around grabbing people. He's got to go. I said, okay, Mike, why don't you go back and you do what you're really good at on handle this? I'm like, sir, what's happening and he looked at me with this like really confused look he said what is this real is is this are we talk i said yes sir this is real life you're having a real life conversation with me what's going on well i i i I don't know i said did did you steal people's guns were you grabbing the women yeah what what are you what are you doing why are you doing that well you guys said it was live without limits (sighs) and i said you you have to this has to be this has to be make believe. You has to be. You have to yeah. be punky me now. Yeah. Where is Ashton Kutcher? You have to know that you're in a play, sir. Yeah. You have to know that you're walking around. You're in a theatrical experience, yeah. and that those are real human beings. And you can't shoot them, and you can't take their guns, and you can't take them upstairs to the brothel and sleep with them. You're at a play. Yeah. Can you behave like a normal human being so we don't have to kick you out of here? Yeah. Okay. Have a good night. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's it's it's scary, but it. It happens, right? Yeah. You know, which and is I've, just weird. Yeah, I've read some of the Sleep No More actresses that have the same thing of guys that are watching because there's a couple of women who get naked and stuff who yeah. just sit there leeringly at the tub every, you know, scene after scene all night long. It's like, yeah. this fucking guy again. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's, you, you it, it, bog, it, it baffles me a bit. Like, yeah. you'd think that people would know, and that's a human being, mm-hmm. but 
I think part of it's that we've been acculturated by the internet to like not think of people as people yeah. and think of people as objects. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other kettle of, it is. kettle of fish. Um, Dark Harbor's coming up uh, as we're recording this. So is so is Harmony here. I don't know when you sleep. Um, <laughs> the last night was, I think, 1977. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good uh, night. Yeah, it's a good night. Oh, that's the year Star Wars came out. Yeah, so that's a good right. year. Um, the last good year, maybe. No. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we've got that to look forward to from you. Uh, without, without, without breaking the NDAs, are we going to be seeing more of your work in the future in this zone? I, I, I think so, and I hope so. Um, I do have um, another project in, in the works with um, Giant Spoon coming up that um, is super-duper exciting. Um, it's going to cause still more sleeplessness because it sort of crashes against some other things. And then, um, you know, I, I'm, my hope is that that relationship, which seems like a really good fit, continues to bear fruit. Um, we sure enjoy working with them, and I, I hope they enjoy working with us. Um, and then my to <laughs> you know, while we've been doing all these other things we've been talking about, has been doing all of this other work in in that traditional space, working with studios and working on theme parks and indoor entertainment centers and museums and municipalities. So that work continues as well. Um, Does any of this work start to bleed into that and the way that people are thinking about using people in these spaces or how to, it, how to provide it, agency to... It does. And, and you know, part of what we start with every project is, but is that what they need? Mm. You know, even with even with Giant Spoon, who we have this incredible relationship with, they, they came to us with one project for, I won't say what the project was, but something that they mounted recently and, and wanted our help with it. And we talked for several days trying to figure out how that would really work, but I really strongly believe that they were... <laughs> They were putting the wrong dollars towards us, that yeah. if they put those dollars towards other facets of what they were doing, they were going to be more successful because they didn't really need us for the piece they were trying to do. And, and that, could, that speaks to your collaborative ethos, right? And that can be hard sometimes to like say, like, I'd, I'd love to work with you guys. I'd, I'd love to have more money coming through, but like that, but it's not what you need, and I'm looking out for... Our long-term relationship. That's exactly yeah. right. And and we want, you know, the, the, the name Myco2 literally stands for my company too, you know, and it, it's not, for example, that we named our company that. We want the people that we work with us, we want the people that we partner with, we want the people who work for us and with us to feel that they're part of our company mm-hmm. and that we're part of theirs. And if I'm having a conversation with Patrick or John um, or Mark over at um, Giant Spoon, it's fine if they disagree with me. I, I'm a guy with a per, big personality, and I'm very assertive about what I believe in, but I'm not right all of the time. But my opinions are based in what I think is the right thing to do, and I'm a very ethical person. And I think that one of the things that has made me somebody that people want to work with is they know that when they're dealing with me, I'm going to give them the truth as best I know it to be, yeah. and at least what my experience tells me it should be. And then if we need to go around and, and, and have fights about it, we, we can do that. But at least you'll know that I'm being honest and it's and that that's where it's coming from. And for me, the best way I can be good for Myco 2, the best way I can be for Giant Spoon, the best way I can be good for my employees is to fight for the project and start with that. What does this project need? And if I'm answering that correctly, if I'm trying to figure out what's going to make this the best project it can be, then I think everybody else will derive the benefits of that. You know, we'll end up looking good. They'll end up looking good. Our employees will end up looking good if we're asking all the right questions for all the right reasons. I love that. Like, the process often dictates product. So, yeah. like, that's good. 
Um, David, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. This was great. Dropping by. Yeah. Um, and I hope that we get to do this again after some other big old project. Be fun. Yeah. Once again, I want to thank David Wally for being our guest on the show. You can connect with MyCo2 at MyCo2.com. That's M-Y-C-O-T-O-O dot com. Um, okay. Hi. Hi. It's, uh, it's that time of the week again. Um, I've got, uh, there's a lot of stuff on my mind, um, as there often is, but consciousness is supposed to be about focusing down (laughs) and, and doing one thing at a time. So, uh, this week I wanted to talk a little bit as I sometimes do about value. Um, mostly because, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, I'll, I'll get into conversations uh, on sort of all angles of things. Um, you know, as we're going through the nuts and bolts of, uh, you know, getting IDS together and what things, you know, really cost and making sure we've got what we need to do what we need. Um, talking to people as they're looking to uh, permit their events, talking to people who see postings, um, for positions and who either have, um, who have like questions or concerns about, you know, how much the compensation is on things, um, talking to people about how much uh, a show costs to go to, uh, folks being like, well, I don't want to pay, you know, more than a hundred dollars for anything. Um, and, and just this, the, the, the wide range of, you know, perceptions, expectations, realities, and how many hidden costs are are baked into this kind of work when it's done at an indie level? Um, because it's funny when there's institutional backing, like uh, uh, academic backing or a corporate backing on something, uh, the scales of cash change immensely. Um, there's 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 a lot of making the sausage here, um, but I think that we. Here's sort of where I'm standing right now. I don't feel comfortable talking for other people or on behalf of other people on things where people haven't said, you know, can you, can you go say this on my behalf? Um, and that's true across the board, right? Like I speak for me, my perceptions, uh, my observations. Um, that said, I think it would do us well as a community of both uh, creators and enthusiasts, if we had more frank discussions about the costs, about what things really cost, um, both in terms of money and the other externalities of cost, right? Because when we're asking people to work on stuff, you know, we're we're asking for their time. We're asking them to put value into the work. Um, in a capitalist society, we uh, often remunerate people through money. There are other ways that people are compensated. And indeed, I think it's safe to say this, 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 I feel pretty confident about that. Even when people are getting paid close to a market rate, and I don't even know if anyone actually gets paid market rate. 
uh, or or if we would look at the market rate and say, oh, that's that's really what it should be. Um, they're not getting compensated as much as they should. And that's often tied to the fact that people aren't, um, you know, the market isn't able to sustain, you know, the kind of ticket prices, or there isn't the sort of sponsorship in the ecosystem to offset the costs for producing work. It sounds like I've been dancing around a few things. It's like, yeah, I am actually like, I'm not, you know, going like these guys over here and they're doing this and doing that because I know that everyone, you know, like 95% of everyone is, uh, doing their damnedest to make this stuff work and to do it as ethically as humanly possible and still get a show up despite the really, 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 really difficult odds of going into a space that isn't intended for this kind of work and making this kind of work. So my message this week is let's start really talking about the costs. Let's start talking about what it actually costs to put a show up cash wise, what it costs hours wise, how much work goes into this stuff. Let's talk about what the hourly rates are in practice, what we'd like them to be. And let's talk about what we can do to make up for the gap between what productions can afford to pay people and the value they need out of their workers. Um, look, if I stepped to the side here and said, you know, if I was approaching something, what I'd, what I'd be looking at is I'd be looking at, well, really, I'd be looking at fully automated luxury communism, but like that's, you know, until we've got the maker bots, you know, digesting carbon and, you know, just pumping out everything we actually need. Uh, we're probably a little bit away from that. Um, I've read too much science fiction in my day, uh, but that possibility aside, um, I'd, I'd be going for things like, you know, rev share uh, when possible. Uh, basically like getting people compensating people on the back end um, or, or some other forms of perks to make sure that people who pump the work in uh, know that they're getting something out of it um, because there are no solid guarantees. Um, and I just want to make sure that folks are getting, are getting a fair square deal uh, across the board. Um, and I also know that without the goodwill of folks who are willing to sacrifice their time because they believe in a production, because they believe that something should exist, that this stuff wouldn't happen. And we need to honor that as well. So finding, striking a balance, like how do we make this stuff? How do we summon wonder from thin air and what do we do to elevate the folks who make it possible right can you hear the power tools i can that's probably the sign of the times that it's time for me to rock and roll um hey let's just start talking all right
let's 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 knock these doors open and let's start uh let's start building towards uh a more equitable tomorrow okay that or that or someone figure out indeed like how to make the replicators from star trek and then we don't have to worry about anything anymore that was the secret that was the secret of the starfleet economy it's the replicator straight up straight up all right, um, I don't know, Star Trek reference. Um, unusual. It's like, why not a Star Wars one? Well, you know, Star Trek sometimes more appropriate. Let's do the credits. All right, the music for No Persinium, as always, is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Oh, you know, and just, just hold on a second here. Hold on a second here. Um, because I need to cop to something here if we're going to have this frank discussion about costs, which is, which is this, right? No Pro is built on the backs of folks who are doing it for the love, okay? The trade-off is, just because if I'm going to talk about this stuff, I need, to, I need to be transparent here. The trade-off is this. As we all know, in the you know, review industry, as it were right now, uh, it's access, right? You trade your time and you're reporting back for access. Um, it's also sometimes, in the case of a few pieces we've got up, um, it's sometimes done by people who've paid to go see a show uh, who just really, really want to write and they want access to the platform. So that's what we like to call exposure. Um, exposure is often derided as a kind of vile, vile thing. Uh, and indeed, um, if someone's coming along and asking someone to do something um, for exposure, eh, eh. If someone comes along and says like, hey, I got something for you. Will you publish it? It's like, well, okay. Yeah. Now, there will come a day, hopefully not too far in the future, where we've got enough coming in on the regular where not only does no pro become my main hustle and not my side hustle, or there's enough income streams coming in that I'm just living in immersive land full time where we can take other monies and start paying our writers for features and start with features where we assign people stuff. It's like, Hey, this is a great article idea. Uh, let's go make this. Here's some money to go make it because I do believe writers should be paid. And at some point way in the future, when this ecosystem is big enough, uh, where reviewers can get paid as well. Um, and somewhere in there also getting compensated uh, for doing the newswire because the newswire is thankless, right? Like it is important, but ain't nobody knocking down anyone's doors and being like, we now trying to find a way to navigate that without just selling out our, our editorial space completely uh, into a bunch of branded content is is hard and there's every chance that we're gonna do some underwriting of some projects uh from you know specific sources something that we're completely open to particularly as we grow and we have been growing like the traffic keeps getting better and it's exciting and i like to go on alexa.com and go like oh where are we in relation to everybody else and i go we um that's a fun game uh, if you're a nerd, um, so that's going well. And it weighs on me that, you know, we're not just knocking out something for every time, but 
if we did that, then then they're they're we just we would we'd be we'd be dead in like five weeks. So the question becomes like, well, should you exist if you can't sustain yourself except through, you know, hobby level sacrifice? I mean, that's the question we're often faced with, right? As a publication, uh, as productions, right? If people weren't sacrificing, let me be fully transparent here for a second. And once we tallied up everything from IDS this past year, 2018, uh, the one we did in, back in January, and all the stuff we did in terms of, um, you know, making sure we covered travel for our speakers and who were coming in from very, very far and making sure that we, you know, paid the fees that we needed to pay and, you know, pay our video editor because that's some thankless work right there. And, you know, buttoning down all that stuff and the fees to like, you know, start, you know, turning ourselves into an official real organization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I made nothing. Zilch. Zip. Zero. No money. No profit from that. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we, we sacrifice. A lot. And I just think we should just get everyone on the same page about that stuff and be realistic about it and find ways to have the language where we talk about things uh, in, in, in more clear terms. Okay. There we go. That's the rant for the week. Uh, I don't, I've never stopped the credits before, uh, but I, I wanted to be uh, going to be transparent. At least let me talk about my own business in a transparent fashion. There you go. All right. Well, they didn't piss off Gabe and Steve, but I, sometimes I don't even think they listen, so it's okay. Okay, uh, watch them listen to this one. Do you ever know what's that? And they said didn't listen. Well, well, yeah. Well, there. I just guaranteed it. Hi, boys. Um, the music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Uh, no Persinium is brought to you by the generous ba- backers of our Patreon uh, supporters. Our sustaining backers are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Arthur Tubman, Ari Hurston, Mark Baltazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth, and of course, by our friends at Meow Wolf. And indeed, thank you all because, um, yeah, we're... Realistically, uh, if this keeps going the way it is in a solid state for the next year, we're like halfway to where we need to be at the moment. Um, and like I said, hopefully we can push beyond. If you want to connect with us, uh, the best way is patreon.com slash no Uh, but you can also find us on Twitter at no on Facebook at no on Instagram at no underscore proscenium. Did I get that right? I got that right. Um, yeah. There it is. All the things. Everything Immersive is a Facebook group. Uh, I adore you all. Uh, And until next time, I'll see you at the show.